me at Jello, Jello. You had me at Jello. You had me at Jello. Oh, you had me at Jello. Good afternoon, everybody. It's five o'clock on a Friday. Hopefully, you have been availing yourself during the week of the resources I have at You Had Me at Chalo and the resources of the various interviewees of uh, the Cello Chat series. And you'll have one more pair of wonderful websites to, to check out after this week's interview as well. My guest today is Michael Reynolds of the Muir String Quartet, among other things and uh, Boston University. How are you today, Mike? Yeah, very, very well, Ben. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's, it's entirely my pleasure. I'm, I'm thrilled about this. Um, could you start by introducing yourself a bit to our viewer and tell about your musical background? Sure. You know, I, I grew up in a small town in Montana. Uh, my parents were both professional musicians, and uh, so I was inspired to become a cellist and uh, I went to the Curtis Institute and then to Yale when the quartet got started. Uh, I studied with David Sawyer, uh, the Guarneri Quartet, and Martita Casals, Casals' wife, and she came to teach when Sawyer was gone uh, while uh, after her husband died. And uh, they were both great teachers in very different ways. Um, and then after that, I, I spent a couple of years with Karen Tuttle. I was fascinated by her school of motion and breathing and um, just trying to develop a more relaxed performance profile. And uh, then after I started teaching at BU, I actually started taking some lessons with my colleague, George Nykru, uh, which was a fascinating experience because he approached the instrument technically and musically from a very different way than I had ever experienced. Um, he was very good when I had to play some virtuoso showpiece at a festival. I, and sometimes on like two weeks notice, I'd I go to him, George, I need some help. And he'd show me how to do the little, you know, tiny motions that make it possible to play things really fast. And, uh, but he also became a good friend. Uh, he was just a terrific artist and a real legend. Um, and then I, I formed the Muir Quartet in 1979 and uh, played with them for 41 years. Uh, we had a wonderful worldwide career and, um, Got to play a lot of really wonderful music and play with great guest artists and see a lot of the world in, in a, a very special way. Um, and I've been the cello professor at BU for many years. Uh, been here since almost 40 years. Um, so that dates me. Um, and it's, it's been wonderful. I have a great class here. And, uh, Boston is a great town to be living and, and creating. So that's the Cliff Notes version. Excellent, excellent. All right, now the overarching theme more than anything else of this series has been the things that motivate us and inspire us to not just to play cello, to get the instrument out and, and do it, but to really want to, to be passionate about playing and practicing. Though I imagine, but among those, not only several teachers, but their varied approaches, but then also your own musical background growing up with, with musical parents. What are some of your, again, the cliff notes of your favorite things that motivate and inspire you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's funny. I always start with Bach. 
because I think Bach is our greatest teacher in terms of character, in terms of color, in terms of timing, in terms of, you know, phrasing. Um, you know, that was, it was imbued in me from when I was young with the Casals recording of the Bach Suites and was fascinated by him and his life. And so, you know, all of my students are always working on Bach and we're always talking about, you know, what's that character right now? What's that, what is the phrase going to be? What, you know, how, how are you going to shape it? Is it going to be a bumpy mountain? Is it going to be a tall mountain? Is it going to be a short hill? What's it going to be? You know, what's the character that's embedded in it? So, you know, Bach, I think, is our best teacher in terms of kind of the basics of expression. Um, and I don't know any students that don't like Bach. Uh, I haven't run into that yet. Um, you know, I like it very different. Um, and I, I try to approach each student from a from their own perspective, you know, learning about their background, learning about, you know, what, what reason they're playing the cello, which is, you know, often very different from one student to another. And, you know, getting into that a little, into the weeds about, well, what does that mean in terms of you motivated to be a certain kind of cellist or a certain kind of career that you're intending? Um, and another thing I always spend a lot of time talking about is, you know, the cellist as, a, as a, an agent of social change or um, helping the environment or, um, you know, creating things from scratch that, that weren't there before. And so helping them to kind of open their minds to what, what their other interests are. You know, I had a cellist who just, just graduated um, and he's a great player, and he could be an absolutely successful professional cellist, but he's going into uh, venture capital um, mm -hmm. in addition to playing. So, you know, there's, so I said, you know, basically you want to cast as wide a net as you can to be successful once you're out of school. And I think that, that helps students to motivate just past going into the practice room and, you know, getting that grind going. Uh, from day to day, just those background uh, dreams uh, that help them to think about, you know, what it's going to be like when they get out in the world. Uh, I don't know if that's the right start of an answer to that question. Uh, motivation is tricky, you know. I and the students will sometimes come to me and say, "Well, you know, God, it's really hard for me to get motivated to practice." And I said, "You know what? You know, you think of." Tai Chi masters or Qigong masters who, who, you know, they're 90 years old, they've been doing this one thing their whole life, but they do the routine. You know, they, they go into the practice room, they tune up, they do some open strings, they do some slow scales, they start looking into the scales in different ways, a lot of different ways to do that. Um, you know, the arpeggios or double stops, you know, all the, the usual. So they go through this standard routine then they do their etude, then they do their Bach, then they do their concerto, then they do their sonata. And I said, just do some of that every day. It doesn't matter how you feel. You know, what I have usually found is that once a student gets into the practice room and starts doing that, then they're okay. You know, it's, it's and, and that the, there's a certain cleanly, oh, it's not the word, word, word. Um, there's a certain clarity that comes from a routine and I always feel cleansed after I do it. 
my mind is cleared. It's you know, all the junk that's been bouncing around outside of it has gone away. And then I can approach the rest of the day feeling like a virtuous soul um, because I practiced that first hour. And then, you know, the other hours after that come when they can. <laughs> I love that. That is, that is uh, very, very inspiring. Very nice. You know, now, I, always tell, I always tell my students to do things like yoga, uh, practice a meditative technique, because that helps to get some of the cobwebs out of your, your head and out of your body. So that, and also that it teaches you another aspect of routine that, that you see the benefit from. So. Right, right. Yeah, it is, it's very hard to practice when distracted, when highly distracted, but to use the discipline of practicing as a way to learn to be able to set those distractions aside. Yeah, I love that. So yeah. one of the things that I enjoyed just immensely in my time at BU was the open rehearsals of the Muir String Quartet. It was just an across-the-board thing. I, just, um, I never heard of you all saying, well, not this particular rehearsal. So I'd find a time um, as, as often as I could in the week to just go where you were rehearsing. And sometimes it would, I'd be the only one and there would be the four of you just only this far away and just really, really working, whether it was uh, getting the ending of a, of a Beethoven quartet just so, or the development of a Bartok quartet I mean, it could be really varied sections. And then and it would sound really great to me the first time. And then you all would stop and, and wrestle with whether it was how to get something to match even better or whether it was just a and rethinking of, well, maybe, the, maybe this is the wrong way to go with this passage entirely. What if we try and do this with it or something? Um, so I would, in general, I'd like to get your thoughts about Chamber music. I mean, of course, like you said, people come to the cello for different things and practicing the cello makes you better at orchestral playing or solo playing or chamber playing. But there's something a little bit different about each of those and chamber music playing, learning how to just plug in your sound right with the exact articulation and color of another player, etc. Um, that is an art above and beyond the mechanics of playing the instrument. So can you talk a bit about your perspective on the rehearsal approach of the Muir Quartet? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting. We went through several different iterations during the decades. You know, our first six years were basically nuclear war. Um, we just went after each other. Um, I, I'm a bit more of a negotiator, but we were stuck in one of these, you know, Wenger modules uh, for the first year, and it was a little like putting a, a puppy in a microwave. Um, it was really, really terrible. But it actually taught us, you know, some of the, the core lessons about, you know, what you can say, how you can say it, who you're saying it to, because you can say one thing to one person, you know, in the most direct, irritating way, and then you have to negotiate with the other person. You know, well, maybe you should try this. So it's a probably the most intense crucible for learning successful interpersonal skills that I know. Um, you know, the violist, Steve Ansel, um, who I've been friends with for 
over 50 years, uh, and I know each other like brothers. And we can say pretty much anything to each other, and, and we know that at the end of the day, we'll, we'll be fine. Um, other people, you know, that have been involved, Peter's the same way, our first violinist. He has the skin of an elephant. You know, he was a big soloist before he joined the quartet, so, you know, you can say anything to him. And it doesn't matter how you say, he just sort of look at you and say, what? What did you say? And then, you know, do what he wants. Um, so, it's, it's a big learning experience, and certainly was for me in terms of how do you get the best out of the people that you're with? Um, so a lot of successful quartet playing and, and quartet life comes from, I think, learning that skill. Um, the, like I said, we've had several iterations, but, you know, in the end, it's all about the music. You know, we, we, we are vehicles to help deliver character and emotion and beauty to our audience. And if we always look at it that way, um, it helps us to get over, well, this isn't about me. You know, it's, it's, it's about us creating. And so, you know, when you watch these open rehearsals where it looks like we're basically about to kill each other, it really is not about that. Uh, it's all about, you know, you have a strong personal feeling about a phrase or a, or a character, and you, you have to get it out. You have to, you know, basically get the group to create that. And if somebody disagrees with that, say, well, no, I feel about this very differently. Let's try this tempo. Let's try this color. Let's try this contact point. You know, and then, you know, since back then we were playing a lot of concerts. So you say, all right, so on Tuesday in Des Moines, we're going to play it this way. And on Thursday in Napa, we're going to play it this way. And, you know, we'll, we'll agree to disagree and, and give the ideas full due. Um, so... You know, there has to be that respect. Um, you know, I've known a lot of quartets. I've seen a lot of quartets come and go. And, you know, watching the ordinary rehearsal, it was sort of the same way. I mean, they, they well, no holds barred. But the Vermeer Quartet was much more gentlemanly-like. You know, I was very good friends with Mark Johnson, the cellist, and, you know, such a mensch. Um, and they, they rehearsed in a very different way and created a very different musical product too um so and i guess the the basis of it is that it is all about character respecting the composer trying to reach into their mind and their heart and to create you know something that conveys that in in through us in the best and most effective possible way um and sometimes the process is a little rough uh, i certainly got a thicker skin playing in a quartet well, and now, for example, when you, so you, you've, you've played solos with orchestras where you are, you are the aesthetic boss, ostensibly, uh, when you're preparing a part for a string quartet, do you find that you kind of prepare it in a broader way in case the tempo goes that way or the articulation goes this way or... You know what I mean? In order to be able to to plug it in wherever the the group goes. Well, I you know that's a great thing about being a cellist in a quartet because you're the foundation, and you're able to kind of steer the ship in a way that really only you and the first violinist can. Um, so I mean, everybody has a very different role, and in this quartet, we certainly had 
you know, I mean, Steve, you know, is one of the greatest violists on the planet, and he had very strong personality and very strong sound. So I always had to be a little more than that and underpin it. If it was another violist, I'd play very differently. Um, and, you know, Peter, who's been our first violinist for, I don't know, 35 years, is, you know, he's a very distinctive musical personality. And it's, with him, it's, it's sometimes just a question of keeping him from going completely AWOL. Um, because he has an amazing artistic imagination, um, but sometimes I say, Peter, you can't, we can't possibly follow that. You know, we actually have to stay inside what you're doing. It's, it's, uh, so, you know, figure out how to dial that down enough so that it's manageable. Um, and, you know, in concert, he'll still go his own way a lot of the time, and you follow it, and afterwards you yell at him while you're having a beer. And um, so it's, it's, a, it's a creative anarchy is really what it is. Uh, we, we're not one of these quartets that say, okay, this is the way we're going to play it. And uh, just like I tell my students, you know, don't you dare play Bach like I do. I mean, my worst version of hell would be for me to be stuck there listening to somebody playing Bach the same way you know, every day for eternity. So, you know, variety is spice of life. So. Excellent. Excellent. And um, to what extent did you uh, pick up aspects of your uh, not just kind of strategy for chamber music playing, but affinity for it from David Sawyer or? Um... Mm. Good question. You know, I mean, Sawyer, you know, it's funny. He, he didn't really know how to teach technique that well uh, because he was such a natural player, but he would play constantly in lessons, and I, I just soaked it up because he was such a great player, and he was always thinking about character, and anytime I didn't play with characters, he would just sit there, you know, dragging on his cigarette and say, what was that, Mike? You know, he, he was, you know, it was kind of a rough, rough guy, but, you know, an absolutely, you know, over-the-top great musician. So just listening to him play, absorbing that aspect of it. And, and, you know, of course, listening to their recordings and going to concerts when I could. You know, it's, it's, it's like osmosis. You, know, you just you soak in things like that. And, you know, with, with Martita, she didn't play at all. Um, she put down the cello to help take care of Casals' career. But she's apparently a great player when she was young. But she was a fabulous teacher in very different ways. And she also was, you know, totally invested in musical character. She's very good at teaching basic technique, but she also insisted on, you know, you being alive in, in every moment in terms of understanding the kind of character you want to portray, which, of course, is always changing. Um, and Karen Tuttle was also a fantastic teacher that way. Um, and George, you know, he, he had such an encyclopedic understanding and memory of, you know, artists from, you know, centuries ago to, to the present, that you just sit there and you know, with your mouth open, wondering how, how in the world he could absorb all of this. Um, and of course, listening to his recordings was a revelation as well. So, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's a little like puppies, you know, they turn from a puppy into an adult, but they develop a relationship with their master and it just happens, you know, through love and through, you know, paying attention. Yes. Wow, more words of inspiration. 
But I want to change the subject a little bit to another type of cello playing. I have to say I was uh, really very, very taken with how much I was, uh, that I learned with your cello excerpt class. Um, the I don't remember how many of us there were, but it, so uh, actually Catherine Reed, a fellow co-author of the article yep. on George had mentioned about on an interview I had with her, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it was about how some students come in thinking, okay, I'm playing my, I'm playing my orchestral excerpts accurately. Now I'll move on to my solo, you know, where they really were going to put their, their character. Whereas you clearly, I think had a different approach to them which mm -hmm. is more like they, like what Catherine was saying, where they need to be played with every bit as much shape and direction and character and story and life as anything else that you're going to play. Uh, so I just, if you have some thoughts about your approach to, to cello excerpts or the way you teach them to your students. Yep. Uh, that's a very good question. I, I played a lot with the Boston Symphony over the years, just uh, after Steve started playing principal viola, and I learned a lot from the folks in the section about, you know, how do you approach, you know, any particular excerpt? And I, I really don't know any of them. They're all great players. You have to be to get into the Boston Symphony, um, who approach anything from less than this has to be beautiful. You know, this has to carry the character, it has to carry the whole dynamic story, uh, it has to capture, you know, that particular mood, um, so that, you know, the, the, the people who are successful, I think, in orchestral auditions, you know, I have the sign in my office that says, always sound good, um, which is, you know, a stupid thing to say, but there, there's an essential truth based in it, because, you know, I have sat next to people occasionally who played with absolute accuracy, never missed a thing, and weren't saying a darn thing. Um, and it was usually a question of attitude. You know, it wasn't because they couldn't. You know, there was, there was a bitterness that kind of crept into their playing. Um, but it, you know, I mean, really, I always advocate for students to, you know, record themselves, you know, listen, you know, not only is it staying at the right tempo, and is it in tune, is it... You know, all the, the kind of the nuts and bolts stuff, but that's that's just the very beginning. It's the foundation of the house, and then then they really have to think. Well, you know, what kind of left hand color do you want right there? You know, do you want a fast or slow vibrato for the cello solo at the beginning of Brahms too, the slow movement? You know, do you want you know in Beethoven five? You know the. You know, how do you approach the, how do you approach the, the you know, the, the rhythmic figure? How do you approach the lift? You know, is, does it have a touch of Vienna in it? You know, what, what is he trying to capture here? Because, you know, these people on audition committees listen to this sort of thing all day. You know, um, I can't imagine what that must be like. Um, and then, you know, they're going to they're gonna pay attention to the ones that are saying something or singing it. You know, I tell my students, you got to sing, you got to sing, because it'll tell you everything. Um, it'll tell you, you know, what your natural tempo is. It'll tell you what the natural phrase is. You know, it connects you to the voice, which, of course, is the perfect instrument. 
So, you know, I, I'm constantly challenging my kids to, I just stop and say, what was that? You know, what are the characters? You know, Karen Tuttle uh, had this two-sided page that had every conceivable subtlety of human emotion written on it. And she had all of her students read it and, and say, that's, that's your basic roadmap. And I want you to be able to, at any moment, in anything you're playing, tell me what that is. Um, so it, it really you know, helped penetrate the, the sort of the unperturbable Montanan in me. Um, you know, the, this is a Montanan happy. This is a Montanan sad. You know, I had to break through that to, to become a real musician. So. All right. Well, now for, I think, many people, a full-time gig in a you know, world-class professional string quartet, plus teaching lessons and other, um, you know, chain music things at a university like BU would be more than a full plate. And yet you are not only a participant in, but an initiator of several other projects. The Classics for Kids Foundation and Arts Live, Fall Foliage Chamber Music Weekend, Montana Chamber Music Society. I, I would love for you both to talk a little bit about these projects. And then also, if you will, kind of the initiative that, that it takes to kind of also be thinking, hey, what's something I would really be passionate enough to want to put in, because these things don't start themselves to put in the, the effort to, to really do? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I, I've often asked myself why I had that sort of change because for, you know, 25 years, I was just a performing bear. You know, I would just walk out on stage all the time. I was playing 100 concerts a year for a very long time. And I just, I got, I didn't say, I wouldn't say I got bored of it, but I said there's got to be more. So... I took a page from my parents' book. You know, they, they were both professional, very good professional violinists who just got tired of having somebody wave a stick at them and decided to move to Montana and start a new life. And my dad was a violin teacher at the university, but then he became the department head. And then he started a local symphonic society when they didn't have one. And he started an opera company. And my mom started the public school strings program in the schools, and uh, they now have five orchestras in the high school. Five. So I was really inspired by that. So I started asking myself, well, what, what could I do based on what I know already um, that could, you know, be useful? You know, where is there a cultural hole that can be filled? Um, and in Montana, there weren't any chamber music societies, so that was an easy one. I just started a summer festival that evolved into the Montana Chamber Music Society over time. And it's become very successful. It's a, you know, it's sort of a vision of a statewide chamber music society because each community can't afford to have its own chamber music society. So uh, the, the concept has worked well. Um, and I brought in, you know, really high quality guest artists um, to, to create a, an interesting and, and varietal series. So that was fairly easy. And then, you know, I'd done a lot of recording for European labels. And, you know, working for record companies, is, it's, it's tricky because you never know what the quality is going to be like in terms of the production. 
Um, so I said, well, why don't I start my own record company? And why don't I do something that has an environmental twist to it? Because I'm an active outdoorsman and interested in the environment. So I started Eco Classics. And that was very successful right away. I had this kind of a environmental hook to it. Um, so we won a Grammy nomination, our first recording, and a, the Grammy for our second recording. So I said, oh, okay, that works. So we've, we've done a bunch of recording for that. And um, and then the you know the other, I ran some other music festivals and created them or, and ran them. But once you figure out how to do it, it's not like pulling teeth. Um, but the, my, my, my big... My magnum opus is really Classics for Kids Foundation because I've always been interested in thinking about what the benefit of music is for kids at risk um, and and rural kids that wouldn't have access otherwise. So we created Classics for Kids to address that uh, through our matching instrument grant and through mentoring programs. And that has become kind of the elephant in the room in my life just because it's gotten big. I mean, we're active in all 50 states now. We only give to programs that serve at-risk kids. And, you know, the stories that come out of this are, are you know, pretty heart-wrenching and dramatic. You know, kids saying, I play the violin because it makes me feel safe. Um, right? You know, and, you know, think about the, the violence and the terror that they, they live in in their everyday lives. But, Music is a safe haven for them. It's the, it's the bubble they can go into that gives them hope and, and gives them direction. So uh, that has become a, a very big thing. And we continue to try to think about how we can do what we do better. Um, and so that, that's, that's the biggest thing for me right now, just outside of teaching, um, in terms of you know, how do we help more? Uh, we've given you know thousands of grants to hundreds of programs all over the country, and and you know they they need more. Um, when I started it, string programs were doing this, and now they're doing this, and a lot of them are brand new um, because the knowledge is out there now that making making music helps you to be a better person, uh, a, you know, a better kid. Learn the kind of discipline that, that we talked about earlier. Um, develop cultural affinity. You know, you're, you're playing with kids all sorts of different ethnicities and backgrounds. You know, it, you're speaking the same language at the same time so that it creates a bond that probably wouldn't or may not have happened. Um, so I'm really excited about that, um, seeing what we can do to help. Because certainly we could use more community um, in the world today. I think music is the answer. Yes. Yes. Amen. Well, I, I normally end with asking uh, future projects, things coming up down the road. It sounds like you have your hands full already, but are, are there particular things you want to highlight that are coming up later in 2022, for example? Yeah. I mean, you know, with my work at BU, I have a very full class, I'm usually over full, which is good. You know, I, I, I love teaching and, and every student, like I say, is so different and, and it's fun to explore, you know, what, how to help them fully realize that potential. Um, so I'm working with um, the education program at BU uh, and a couple of the projects that we've given grants to in the Boston area to create kind of an incubator project where you know, the students 
learn more about Classics for Kids. They go into the classrooms. They see what the effect of our grant program is. Uh, they, they work with the kids in these at-risk environments. They learn a lot about, you know, their teaching skills. Um, and I do encourage a lot of my students to, uh, we have a double degree program at VU where you can do a bachelor in performance and a master's in music education in five years. So, and, you know, that way you, you, you go out with a, as I say, cast a large net. You have a larger net to go out and be successful with because you can be a teacher and a performer um, and, you know, pull the best of both worlds um, into your life. So that, that's a big project I'm kicking off uh, just this spring and next fall. Um, wow. Wow, best of luck with all of it. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, lots of lots of wonderful food for thought, and in a variety of, of different ways. I know um, if if any viewer has a even a moment this weekend in practicing when when they take a breather, a lot of these thoughts will surely be thing that can provide that additional fuel for for ideas and inspiration and curiosity and everything that makes us love music as much as we do. Well, thank you, Ben. It's, it's an honor and a pleasure. It was great to work with you on the, the Nigru project. Uh, just fabulous memories. Um, all right. All right. Well, you take care. And everybody, happy practicing. We'll see you next week. <laughs>